Okay, Matthew is where we will be in chapter 3. Pastor Chad, um, a couple weeks ago, went through chapter 2. I think he mentioned that at some point we're going to kind of start to slow down and not go through this at a rapid pace. But again, we're going we're gonna to move through a chapter this morning. Um, there's a lot here, but uh, we're going for it. So, so here we go. In, in Matthew chapter 3, roughly 30 years have passed since chapter 2. So Jesus was a, a young child at that point. They fled to Egypt and then came, went to Nazareth. And now, now we pick up 30 years roughly later. More importantly, though, roughly 400 years have passed since the nation of Israel has heard anything from their God. But that's about to change because God is about to do something new. Um, both the book of Isaiah and the book of Malachi say that God is going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And, and so the picture is this, this idea of a herald who would come before the king to announce his presence and also make sure that the road was ready, make sure that it was passable and, and uh, prepared for him. The Old Testament ends with this prophecy about that prophet that would come in, in Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And now in Matthew 11, Jesus actually identifies John the Baptist as this promised prophet. So it says, this is, a, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And in verse 14, he goes on to say, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So after a very long drought, God sends this prophet named John the Baptist to ready the people for King Jesus' arrival. And that's where we pick up in, in verse one of chapter three in Matthew. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when it said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. So John wore the official uniform of the prophets. I don't know if they, if they like had a meeting and picked these out at one point, but the camel's hair, the belt, he, he, was, he, was, he was ready to go. Uh, he ate bugs, which is gross, even if he did dip them in honey. I don't know if that was a way just to have him go down. Don't know what's up with that. But, but what we see here is that the clothing and the lifestyle would have immediately reminded the, the people of the prophet Elijah that this wouldn't have been lost on them. His clothing and his lifestyle also would say something about who he was, the credibility of this prophet and the credibility of his message. Because John, you know, he didn't have a fancy building. He didn't have expensive clothes, champagne and caviar lifestyle, the best food. He didn't, you know, land in the desert on a private jet. This isn't who the guy was. You know, if he had, you could easily conclude that this guy was just in it for fame and money. But when you're living in the desert, wearing camel's hair and eating bugs, Pretty safe to say you're not in it for the money at that point. And in fact, his message, this message that he fearlessly preached would have gotten him in trouble and actually did eventually cost him his life. And so, you know, all of this validates his credibility and who he was. His ministry is also a great reminder that you don't have to have 
all the bells and whistles, the light shows and the fog and all the things that, that we think of today that will really be make for an effective church. I mean, he was in the desert. It's dirty there. It's dusty there. It's hot there. There's nothing exciting going on out there. You know, we have this idea that if you build it, they will come and, and we, we, we kind of operate churches that way. But people were coming out to the desert because they were desperate to hear the message that John was preaching. And, and I, I think we need to remember that sometimes. Do we want to make things nice? Do we want to? Yeah, of course. But, but ultimately, the message of the gospel is what is going to draw people to the church. So in verse 5, it says this is exactly what was happening. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So something amazing is happening here. This is a very large number of people that are coming out to be baptized. And baptize, baptism wasn't a normal thing for, for Israelites to do, at least not like this. A Gentile would do this if he was wanting to convert to Judaism. He would get baptized, or she would. That was normal. It was common for Jewish people to do ritual and ceremonial washings from time to time, things like that. But, but this would have been an unusual thing for a Jewish person to do. And this is a baptism of repentance, which means you're identifying of a, as a sinner in need of change. And they're doing this publicly. They're admitting this publicly. This is really a cool thing. Their sincerity, what they were doing, becomes even more convincing when you consider, again, the fact of what this could have cost them. Being baptized in this way, in this, in this in culture, this could mean loss of family, loss of job, those types of things. You know, this kind of stuff wasn't approved or sanctioned by the Jewish religious leaders, and they kind of controlled the way things went. So the fact that the people were doing this uh, eventually does come to the attention of the Jewish leaders. And so they make their way out to the desert to see what's happening. And in the spirit of Elijah, John welcomes them in the same way that the prophet Elijah might have welcomed them. That's how I imagine it anyway. Verse 7 says, When John saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to his baptism, he said to them, Welcome, fellas. Come on in. The water's fine. No, that is not what he said. He said, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> I, love, I love John. I mean, he was not pulling any punches here with these guys. Brood of vipers is basically the offspring of snakes. If you want to take that just a little bit further, Satan's kids. I mean, this wouldn't have been lost on them. This was not good, what he said to them at all. And he asks them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's actually a wonderfully sarcastic remark, which I happen to be a fairly sarcastic person myself, so I appreciate this. The idea of what he's saying is like, I've warned these people about the wrath to come and I, and I provided the way for them to escape it. Since none of you guys are lining up to get into the water, I assume somebody's already warned you about the wrath to come. You know, you must have already had this, you know, this conversation. Um, you must have already been warned because based on your behavior, you should be worried and you should be lining up with these people, but you're not. I mean, this is kind of what he's saying. He's pointing out that the lack of godly fruit in their lives means that they have the same wrath dilemma as all these people that are there that day. And the fact that they're not lining up right behind them kind of makes John a little bit irritated. They have the same need to confess their sin, to repent, and to be baptized. Of course, they didn't agree. They didn't agree with this at all. But John keys right in on, on why they didn't, because what they're going to say is like, we don't need to do this. We're the children of Abraham. This is going to be their answer. And so verse 9, he says, and do not presume to say to yourself. He already assumes that it's coming. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. They were relying on their heritage and their nationality for their salvation. They assumed 
that that was enough. But God's plan for salvation is the same for everyone. Everyone, We must place our faith in Jesus and not in anything else. That's always been the plan of salvation. They looked forward to the cross. We looked back to the cross, but the plan's the same. Now, I wanted to say, do you see parallels here between Jewish people thinking that they are in right standing with God simply because of the nation that they are from and American Christians who are doing the same thing? There's this assumption that we are God's chosen people, and that's enough. It's not enough. Too many people are counting on this idea to save them, but that's not how it works. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. That's how it works. So family, heritage, you know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. You've heard that saying before. That's not how this thing works at all. We must bow before Jesus and confess him as Lord, believe in what he's done. He's also telling these guys here that God's plan of redemption was about to expand. Um, uh, you know, he was about to raise up children of Abraham, Abraham, more children of Abraham from something that they would have thought was impossible. Not the rocks, but actually Gentiles. And that's being talked about here. Just, just it's hinted at. Um, the idea here is that the rejection of the Jewish people, their rejection of Jesus was going to open the door of salvation for us to go through. Romans 11 says the branches were broken off so that we could be grafted in. But praise God that he allowed us to become part of his people. I'm, you know, as a Gentile, I really like that he did this a lot. Um, and also praise God that Romans 11 goes on to say that salvation is still going to be available for them. He didn't forsake his promises to them. He didn't give up on them. He just included us in what he was doing with them. And so Romans 11 goes on to say, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Same program though, Jesus, faith in Jesus. And so I believe this is partly what he's referring to in verse 10 when he says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So a clear distinction is being made here between those who confess their sin, repent, are baptized, and bear fruit, and those who don't. The winnowing fork was used on the threshing floor to kind of um, separate the grain and the chaff. So they would, they would scoop, you know, put the fork down underneath it, kind of toss it up into the air. The chaff would blow away because there was no substance. The grain would fall because there was. And that's what he's describing here. So, so this is kind of the big, you know, the, the passage itself, but there's, there's a few big ideas that, that I want to camp out on and look at. The first one is the need to repent. So change is needed. The second one is the need to be baptized because change is possible. And the last one is why? Why would we do this stuff? And, and the reason is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're gonna look at these three things. First one is the need for repentance. Repentance is kind of a bad word. Um, I don't know why people hear that and it, it's, you know, repent. You get this idea of an angry preacher on the street just yelling at people or something like that. It's, it has that feel to it. It implies that something's wrong with you. And, and whatever that is, it needs to change or bad things are going to happen. That, that's the idea of you know, why this is needed. And I believe that that's something that's actually built into us by God. That's something that he's imprinted on us. We all know that something's not right with us. We all know that something's not right in our world. Change is needed. But sadly, repentance just gets left out of the conversation today. We don't talk about it in churches, and we know why. Right? Repentance doesn't fill the seats, does it? 
it's not something people want to come and hear. They want to hear a kind of a, a candy-coated message about how, you know, special I am and that kind of thing. That's what, that's what people want to hear, and, and there's a lot of churches that will preach that. Repentance isn't going to, like I said, build a big church, but it's definitely something that we must teach. And in all honesty, it's, it's the most loving thing that we can say to someone if we believe that they're going to face eternal condemnation if they don't repent. Acts chapter 17 tells us that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And who is that man? Jesus. His son, Jesus. That's who it is. This day will come. So repentance is important. But what does it mean to repent? What does it include? The first thing we see it tied to in this passage is the confession of sin, which means that we need to admit that we've done wrong or that we are wrong. Confession really, in, in a lot of ways, just means that we agree with God. So he'll, he'll say, you know, I, this is wrong, and we, and we can say, no, it's not, or we can agree with that. Once we agree that it's wrong, confession is kind of what happens. We agree with God. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin in its simplest form just means to miss the mark. So what is the perfect, what is the mark? It's, it's perfect holiness. That's the mark. So it's the idea of, I like the old, you remember the, when you were a kid and you wanted to go on one of those rides and there was that little sign, must be this high to, to get to go on the ride. Well, the sign in heaven is really, really up there. Must be this holy to come into heaven. It's like we can't even see the top of that sign. We're not even close is the point. You and I, with our best attempt, will never be able to hit the target. So if you kind of imagine perfect righteousness as the, tar as the target and our good deeds as the arrows, we're trying. You know, we've got this pulled back and we're trying and the target's maybe 100 feet away. Our arrows are like landing maybe a couple feet in front of us. Sometimes they're going behind us. <laughs> well, how did that happen? I don't know. I mean, we're not, we're not going to get close to this thing. And the truth is, most of the time, we don't even want to hit the target because we enjoy our sin. So whether we're trying to hit the target or intentionally missing the target, our sin separates us from a holy God. So the first step in repentance is admitting our woeful inability and confessing our sin to God. The problem with this sometimes is that when we think about repentance in this way, we've all seen people repent that don't really seem to mean it. I know this sounds weird, but oftentimes when somebody's caught red-handed, their back's against the wall, they'll say whatever they have to say, right? They'll confess, they'll, they'll promise to change. Uh, they had no problem really with what they were doing until they got caught. And then, and then it's like, well, you know, we see, we see this at press conferences all the time. I think it's hilarious, you know. Uh, I did not do this thing. And then all of a sudden you get caught and it's like, okay, well, you got to pretend like you're sorry for it, right? We, we, we see this kind of thing happening. They're not broken over their sin before God. They just are, you know, stuck with these consequences. They don't do something, so they have to. But this is the way 2 Corinthians 7.10 puts it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's the difference. So just because somebody says they've repented, you know, we need to look for more than just that. There is a repentance that leads to salvation, and there's a repentance that looks good but doesn't actually change your course. So this is a great question for you to consider. Do I hate my sin, or do I just hate the price that... I have to pay because of my sin. Big difference in those things. We have a great example in the Bible of someone who was truly broken over their sin, and I think it comes out in the way he responded, and that's King David. And you guys, I, I assume, are familiar with the story, but in case you're not, uh, we know the story of Bathsheba. David is, you know, sees this beautiful woman on a rooftop bathing, and, and he 
comes up with this plan basically to have her brought over, has his way with her. Um, oops, she gets pregnant. So then he has to come up with a new plan. His, her husband's away at war. So he thinks, okay, I'll, I'll send a message to have him come home. So he'll sleep with his wife. This will all work out just fine. Nobody will know. Problem is Uriah is a pretty good, pretty good guy. And he comes home and he says, it's not right for me to, to be with my wife in this way when my, my buddies are back on the front line. So he wouldn't sleep with his wife. So David tries to get him drunk. You think, you know, this will wear him down. Doesn't get worn down. So then David's stuck again. So now he comes up with a new plan. Put Uriah on the front lines of the war and then everybody take five steps back. You know, just, just basically puts a hit out on Uriah and has him killed. This is bad behavior by a king. And the prophet Nathan comes to King David. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 12. And he presents this scenario to the king about this guy who had all of these sheep and lambs, all of this stuff. And and yet there was another guy that only had one. And he loved it, like a daughter even. You know, the family spent time with it, loved it. And somebody comes to town and and the rich man needs to prepare a feast. And he's like, well, I'm not going to use one of my sheep for this. So he goes over and he takes that, that the, other, the poor man's one sheep that he had and, and slaughters it. And King David's furious. He's like, I cannot believe that somebody would do something like this. And Nathan points at him and says, you are that man. Can you imagine that? And there's David going, I am that man. Now he can respond a few different ways. But what he does is he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He admits it. He owns it. Not only that, but he writes a psalm. You ever thought about that? Psalms were sung publicly. These were songs you would sing in church. He writes down his sin in the form of a song and says, hey, guys, sing, sing about this. I mean, I just wouldn't do that. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm. I'm sure some of you have spent time on your knees praying through that psalm yourself, personally identifying with that psalm. I know I have. You know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And at the end of that psalm, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When we're broken over our sin, when we own it before God, he's pleased with that, and he'll forgive us when we do that. So that's the beauty of repentance. What repentance, you know, true repentance doesn't make excuses. True repentance doesn't blame others. And we've seen that. We know what that looks like. Can you imagine David saying, well, I mean, she went on the rooftop. She was right there where I could, I mean, she, she had it coming. You know, this is the kind of stuff we would say. You, you find ways to, to say, well, I did this, yes, but true repentance doesn't, the word but doesn't enter in. Because the minute you say but, what you're saying is it's not really my fault. I didn't really do anything wrong. It's somebody else's fault. You, this is what, repentance doesn't include those things. Repentance fully owns what you've done before the Lord and, and, and you know, is grieved over. And this is rare, <laughs> Unfortunately, it, it just seems rare. I don't see people broken over their sin as much as I wish I, 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 I did. You know, one of the things that I really I hate about modern day counseling, which has become extremely popular today, and so I'm not trying to step on toes if, if this includes you, repentance is often not the goal. Uh, the goal is usually to uncover reasons why you are the way that you are. And, and the more reasons that you can uncover, the better. But that's where it stops for a lot of people. Now they have an excuse to justify their behavior, which is really what we're kind of looking for at the end of the day. We don't want to change our behavior. We just want to be okay with the way it is. See, so you'll hear people say this kind of thing like, hey, I just had this massive breakthrough. I'm really broken, but now I know why I'm broken. 
Isn't that great? And it's like, well, are you still broken? Yeah. Yep. But I know why now. And it's like, well, okay, that's cool. But what about, what about not being broken anymore? What about that part? Many of the personality tests do the same thing. They reveal something without ever making a solution. I don't know if you guys have, we have those personality tests that, you know, the kids, kids will say, hey, let's do this. And I'm a, I'm a, I had to write it down. I'm a type six with a five wing, whatever that means. Okay. That's the thing. So you can look it up. It's like, nice. That explains everything. Okay. But does it solve anything? No, it just, it just says, this is the way you are. So the way that James would, would put it in chapter one of, of the book uh, of James, he would say, it's like a person who looks at himself in the mirror, sees all kinds of things that are wrong, and then walks away immediately forgetting what he saw. The Bible says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So this is where repentance comes in. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. It involves turning away from one thing and towards something else. So we turn from self and sin toward God and his grace. Repentance is necessary when we first come to Christ for salvation, we, we understand that part. But unfortunately, if you haven't noticed, it's not a one and done type of thing, is it? Um, God continually shows us new things in the mirror that we have to, to repent from that we weren't aware of before. So the Christian is actually called to walk in repentance. And this means a, a daily turning away from sin and a daily turning towards God's grace. There's, t- there's days when I get dizzy from, from, uh, from all the turning I'm doing, you know, it, it feels like, you know, I could just fall over at any moment because I'm finding new things that I didn't realize that, that, you know, God just convicted me of something. And then I, you know, it's that kind of daily thing we go through. So, so let's say that God reveals that I have a problem with anger. I can give you all kinds of reasons why I'm angry. You know, I could talk about my childhood. I could talk about the, the raw deal that I was given. I could talk about all the stuff that's going on in the world right now and why the man's against me. I mean, I can go on and on and on and tell you all the reasons why my anger is completely justified. And I can take a personality test that says, well, you have a propensity towards anger. You know? Or, you know, my dad was an angry guy. So, I, of course, I'm going to be angry. You know, you can do all, all day long. But the problem is this. You know what God says about my anger and my rage? It's sinful. It's harmful. It grieves me when you're that way. And so I have to deal with that. I can't just excuse it. I need, to, I need to acknowledge. I need to confess it. Change is needed. That has to happen. You know, I think there are two main reasons that people don't turn to God for change. It's either that we think we're too bad, sinful, or, or we think we're too good, which is prideful. Both of those things require repentance. So if you're talking to somebody about these things, somebody who maybe thinks they're too bad, you can tell them about the love and the grace of God. Turn to that. If you're talking to somebody who thinks they're just fine the way they are, tell them about the law and the judgment of God. And, and hopefully that will cause them to turn. Sometimes we're just going to run into people who don't want to repent. That they're unwilling to. We, you know, we, we, we prayed for some of these people this morning in our lives. That's a real thing. So we just keep praying that God would grant them repentance. That he would grant them this godly sorrow over their sin that would want cause them to turn to him. And that's a great prayer, prayer to prayer. You got it. Yeah, it's right in my head. It just doesn't come out of my lips right. I love this quote by, by David Dixon. He says, I have taken my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I've thrown them together in a heap and fled from both of them to Christ. And in him I have peace. So change is needed, but the good news is change is possible. And this is where we talk about baptism. Now, as I mentioned earlier, John the Baptist's ministry 
was the start of something new. He was ushering in the new covenant of grace. So the baptism he was doing is different from what we do today um, in some regards, but I'm going to focus on kind of what we do as Christians now who are baptized into Christ and into the new covenant of grace. There's two sacraments that are given to the church. Uh, with communion and baptism, both of these things clearly portray Jesus' work on the cross and what he accomplished for sinners through that sacrifice. And by taking part in them, we're both identifying with that work and we're participating in that work as sinners who need it. And when I say participating, I don't mean participating in the accomplishment, but in the benefit. Do we, do we understand? One, one would be kind of heresy, like if, if we're saying that I, I added to the work of Jesus. No, we don't do that, but we, we benefit in this way when we when we participate. So in baptism, we go down into death with Christ. Our sins go down into death. And then we are, we are cleansed by his sacrifice, by his blood. We are, we are raised to new life and made a new creation in Christ. That's, that's the picture. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what happens in the water of baptism does not save us, but it, but it is really inextricably linked to what does, the work that God does through the cross. Baptism signifies death and a whole new way of life. This is why those people were coming down to see John at the river that day. They knew that they needed to change. So it's both, both a sign of believing and a sign of belonging. So when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, their baptism meant they were leaving the former way of life and, and they were starting something new. And it's kind of the same idea for us. To me, it's kind of like putting a stake in the ground that marks the old life behind and the new life before. Verse 11, John contrasts what he's doing with a spiritual baptism that Jesus will perform. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, people have taken and run with that in all kinds of crazy directions. I don't think this needs to be complicated. Um, I think that the idea of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is not a new concept. The Old Testament talked about a time when God would put his spirit within people and pour out his spirit upon them. This is what it's talking about. God is going to place his Holy Spirit within sinful people. And this is why John the Baptist adds that, that concept of fire, because what does fire do? It, it purifies, it refines. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. When you introduce God's holiness into somebody, like a sinner like me, becomes holy, holy, holy. So this baptism actually makes it possible for this repentance we've been talking about to happen. I can't stress this enough. I can try to repent all day long apart from the power of God, apart from his intervention in my life, and I won't get very far. And that's why John looked at those leaders and said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because if it's really happened, if, the, if this has taken place, if I've been baptized by the Holy Spirit with fire, this fruit will occur. If he's given us a new heart, it's going to amount to new desires, a new, new desire for obedience. The fruit of the Spirit will naturally come out of us, not as a result of our ability or our righteousness, but as a result of being connected to the vine, Jesus. So change is possible because Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and water baptism corresponds to that reality. And it should probably be done in quick succession. I don't know why we, you know, believe and be baptized. Isn't that what we read in the New Testament? You, you know, the Ethiopian, hey, I just believe. Is there any reason that, you know, there's water over there? It's like, no, you need to go through a class. We're going to have a, there's a 12-week class that you need to sign up for. We want to wait, you know, make sure it's, we do this now in churches a lot. People will wait 20 years before they're baptized sometimes. I, why, why, I don't know why we do that. Believe and be baptized. I'm, I'm always kind of surprised 
when I meet Christians who have never been baptized. I just met a, I just was talking with a family member that I just always assumed was. And I'm like, when were you baptized? Oh, I never have been. It's like, you've been a believer for 30 years, man. Why? I, I don't know. I just didn't think it was important. Well, it was important to Jesus. Um, even he was baptized. This is important. I love that our Lord never asks us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself, even things that he had no reason to do, like baptism. If you thought about this, we see this objection kind of pop up in verse 13 with Jesus and John the Baptist. John has a very reasonable objection because he knows exactly who Jesus is. So, so we, 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 you know, it's like, hey, here, Jesus, he even announced Jesus as the, the spotless lamb. Here's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And, but then in verse 13, we read, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So he understood. Wait a second. You got this wrong. I'm not, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. You're the righteous one. You're the sinless one. You're the holy one. I'm not even worthy to carry your sandals, which was the job of a slave. You know, this is like, I, I'm not even worthy to wash your feet. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented to baptize him. This is amazing. I love that John had no desire to compete with Jesus. It's, you know, he could have been a rock star, John the Baptist. You know, he could have printed out some shirts and made some, got some swag and he could have, he could have made some money off this deal, right? He had no desire to compete for attention or position with his Lord. He said, I need to decrease and he needs to increase. I love that. It's like, there's never a point where like Jesus should be in our shadow. We need to be in his and if you ever see anything like that taking place in this church or in any other church, um, warn and run. <laughs> I mean, it's just, that's, that's scary stuff. John the Baptist understood this. He also understands the sinlessness of Jesus. He, he knows that Jesus has nothing to repent of. So baptizing him doesn't make any sense. But Jesus says, no, just as you're fulfilling something, John, an Old Testament prophecy by announcing that I'm, the Messiah, I'm also fulfilling something. I'm, I'm fulfill, fulfilling righteousness for sinners. And I'm going to be baptized right alongside them as part of that mission. And I can't imagine this, but it's such a cool thing to consider. Can you imagine being there that day and witnessing Jesus, the Messiah, walking down into the water? He had no business being in that water, just like he had no business being on that cross. And yet he was going about his father's business, doing what he came to do for sinners. So his baptism is a crazy preview of the final sacrifice that will happen. You have the true temple of God, you have the high priest of God, and you have the lamb of God going down into that water, humbly associating with sinners and being baptized right alongside of them, identifying with those that he, would, that he came to save. It's such a crazy thing to think about. It foreshadows what he will do on the cross where all of the floodwaters of our sin will come upon him. I just can't help but picture all these people that day lining up to be baptized. And again, this is symbolic, but you picture their filth in the water coming up new, their filth in the water coming up new, and then Jesus goes down and gets in that same water. This is crazy. Mm, sorry. In verse 16, we have this also this beautiful validation of Jesus in what takes place. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
So you've got John the Baptist announcing him, and you've got the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the validation of who he was in the Trinity active here. And we see the reality of this last point that I'm going to make, um, the reason that John the Baptist told people to repent and be baptized, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? It ultimately means that Jesus is at hand. Jesus is within reach right now, standing on the banks of the Jordan. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, you guys. This is him. The king has entered the building is basically what he's saying. You know, the kingdom always carries the idea of reigning. Heaven came down to us through Jesus. He came down to elbows with the likes of us to be baptized alongside of us and to go to the cross because of us. And his finished work on the cross is really the inauguration of his yet, but it's coming, and I believe very soon it will be fully realized and visible to all, and see what we can't wait to see. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. So hearing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand should create a sense of urgency, urgency for those who have been putting God off for a more convenient time, maybe, and urgency for us who have been putting off telling others about him. John the Baptist communicated two very important things for us to hear, two very important things about humanity. There is a need for us to change, and there is one who can change us. Amen. And the preaching of the word commentary, it's a really great commentary that I like. Uh, he points out something that I found amazing, and I'm going to kind of switch it around a little bit, but it's this pattern that I hadn't, you know, it's there, but I hadn't really focused on. Egypt, water, desert, promised land. Right. So Israel came out of Egypt through the waters, parting of the Red Sea, wandered in the desert for 40 years, and then entered the Promised Land. Jesus comes out of Egypt. Remember, his family just fled there. Through the water here at the Jordan River, into the desert, chapter 4, we're going there next time, to be tempted by the devil. His time in the desert would continue as he goes to the cross to suffer, to die, to be buried, before rising again and ascending back to the Father where he is preparing a place for us, the the promised land. So, so the, the, you, again, you see it. Egypt, water, desert, promised land. The road has been mapped out for us, trailblazed by Jesus himself. He will lead us out of Egypt, which was slavery, sin. Through the waters of baptism, purified by the Holy Spirit, by fire. We do have to spend a little time in the desert. I like to think of it as wilderness training, all right? But it has a point. It has a purpose. This is how we are being sanctified, conformed into the image of his son. And we're also supposed to maybe tell some other people around us in the desert about the Savior who will take them out of Egypt through the waters and into the promised land. That's the point. And we have this beautiful thing to look forward to, our final destination, the kingdom of heaven, the new Eden of God, the promised land. I can't wait to be there, and I love that God has done everything necessary for us to go. All we need to do is believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died, was buried, rose again for our sins, and confess that he is Lord. And this is why we have this other wonderful this table set for us right now, that we get to enjoy communion, which completely preaches that story of Jesus on the cross. His body broken for you his blood shed for you so that you could live. 
This table is set for believers to proclaim his death until he comes. Amen. Amen. Father, we just want to thank you for this account of John the Baptist. Thank you for the account of Jesus coming. Um, it just blows our minds that you would condescend to us, that you would go to the cross for sinners like us so that we could have life. It makes no sense, and yet we are thankful for it. We thank you for your willingly going there to allow us to be broken in your bloodshed for sinners. And we pray that now as we receive this, uh, that we would worship you and that we would, that we would be grateful and that this repentance that we've talked about would be real, that we would be broken over who we are, but grateful for who you've made us and that we would walk in that newness of life that you've made possible for us through Jesus. Amen.